This week, how stress and other mental states can affect the body. I had had the last couple of weeks some pretty tough stuff going on, and I was very stressed out. And I thought to myself, wait a second, you know, we've shown this data. Why am I sitting here waiting to get a vaccine? So I got up and I walked out, and two or three weeks later, I came back and got my vaccine shot. Now that's science in action. Plus, we visit London's Science Museum, where they've recreated the Large Hadron Collider. You might expect it to be very high-tech and very flash, but, you know, the walls are grey, there's sort of graffiti on them and dirt. And we discover a new way to explore the ins and outs of complex molecules. This is The Nature Podcast for November the 28th, 2013. I'm Kerry Smith. First, how stress can affect the body. Mind over matter. It's a familiar idea that the mind can control the body. A stressful time at work can lead to a bad case of flu, for example. It's an idea at the root of a growing field with a catchy name, psychoneuroimmunology. This has been an observation stretching all the way back to the earliest stages of organised medicine in the West. That's Steve Cole at the University of California, Los Angeles. But really the notion kind of caught fire again in the 1970s when both the general public became more interested in mind-body health connections and when we started to learn enough about the molecular and cellular features of health that we could start putting together a, a coherent story about how this actually happened. Cole is one of a number of scientists looking at the molecular mechanisms connecting the mind and body. This might explain how the mind can affect the matter. One mental state he focuses on is loneliness, which is known to be a big risk factor for disease. Cole wanted to know which genes might be sensitive to loneliness, so he looked at the expression of genes in lonely people and people with good social support. In general, people that have high levels of loneliness for a long period of time, a chronic sense of essentially being disconnected from the rest of humanity, seem to show increased expression of a variety of different pro-inflammatory genes. And at the same time, the genes that uh, we'd really like to be turned on to defend us against various kinds of infectious diseases, especially viral infections, seem to be suppressed. This is a strange response, surely, for loneliness to make us open to infection. So why might humans have evolved this pattern of gene expression? Inflammation seems to be uh, in, in the immune system on a kind of a teeter-totter with antiviral responses. You really, it turns out, can't run both of those at full throttle at the same time. If you want a very strong inflammatory response, usually you have to downregulate these antiviral responses and vice versa. So uh, what seems to be happening is you have an immune system that is under non-stressed circumstances pretty strongly biased towards defending human beings against viral infections, which is important because we're an extremely social species and that's how viral infections get around. What seems to happen when we get uh, feeling threatened for an extended period of time is the immune system changes its bias away from viral pathogens and toward combating the kinds of bacterial infections that would come from a, uh, a wounding injury. So being lonely can weaken our fighting spirit, but social isolation isn't the only risk factor for disease that scientists are studying. Since the 1970s, Ronald Glazier at Ohio State University in Columbus has been investigating the effect that stress might have on the immune system. We asked the question, does stress affect how vaccines work? 
And we looked at three different kinds of vaccines, and we inoculated our subjects with vaccines of those three types of, of, of agents. And we measured antibody levels to them over time. And we found that if our subjects were stressed from a stress group compared to a control group, that the people who fell in the stress group had lower levels of antibody to vaccine. Now, that's very important. Important partly to Glazier's own viral defences. I had to go get a flu vaccine shot over here in our medical centre one fall. And I was sitting there waiting to get the injection when it suddenly occurred to me that I had had the last couple of weeks some pretty tough stuff going on, and I was very stressed out. And I thought to myself, wait a second. You know, we've shown this data that stress affects the ability to produce vaccines. Why am I sitting here waiting to get a vaccine? So I got up and I walked out, and two or three weeks later, I came back and got my vaccine shot. Vaccines are meant to prevent illnesses from happening, and they can be affected by psychological factors like stress. But what about after a diagnosis? Can someone's state of mind determine how their disease will play out? Here's Steve Cole again. The evidence right now suggests that at least for a lot of the diseases that we fear most, it's actually the way you respond to the disease once you realize you have it that seems to have the biggest epidemiologic association. One fairly recurrent pattern we see in cancer, for example, is that there's relatively little association between people's experiences of stress and threat and uncertainty and the initial appearance of a cancer. It's as though we get cancers largely from non-psychological processes, but once somebody is diagnosed with a cancer, there is the strongest association between psychosocial factors, depression, but especially social support. Jim Coyne, who studies the psychological aspects of cancer at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, disagrees. He thinks it's misleading for patients to think they can alter their prognosis just by joining a group. Surveys suggest that some women with breast cancer go to support groups with the belief that they're strengthening their immune system and they have to go, or otherwise they're failing to use one of the options they have to extend their life. And that's the message to which I object because I don't see whether the scientific evidence supports that. Coyne's research has shown that support groups that aim to reduce stress and allow members to express emotion, also known as psychotherapy, don't improve an individual's chances of surviving cancer. Cancer is a very disruptive experience. It's, um, it's, it's life-altering and potentially life-ending. And it poses real uh, challenges to cope with. And there are various things that people can do to learn to cope with it better. But that's separate from being able to influence the actual course of cancer. So although scientists can show the effects of psychology on the immune system in some diseases, they can't yet show the relevance for cancer. I think the role of the immune system in cancer is so complex that that the studies are pretty naive that are trying to relate psychological factors to the immune system. Um, and it's, it, it's really not clear how we could demonstrate at this level of knowledge or anytime soon any clinically significant effects. Which isn't surprising given how difficult it is to study mind-body interactions. Ronald Glazier again. It involves at least three members of the body systems, the immune system, the endocrine system, and the nervous system. Each one of these systems alone are very, very complicated that we're still learning about. And now you add to that the ability of the immune cells and other kinds of cells in our body to be affected by stress. I mean, we're talking pretty, pretty difficult stuff to, to study at this point in the game. 
So what next for the field? I asked Steve Cole. Much of what we're doing, for instance, in the genomics world, really centers around trying to understand why the human genome is hooked up to human psychology in the first place. Or another way of putting it is which genes pay attention to your social and psychological life and which are indifferent. It turns out probably the majority of our 21,000 genes are, you know, busy keeping your liver running or something like that and really don't pay attention that much to your social and psychological experience. That was Steve Cole at UCLA and before him Ronald Glazier of Ohio State University and Jim Coyne at the University of Groningen. Reporter Joe Marchant has written a feature investigating the molecular mechanisms of mind and body connections for this week's Nature. You can read it in full at nature.com news. I'm Thea Cunningham. Still to come in the research highlights how painkillers and pots play together and the explosive collapse of an Antarctic ice shelf. But first, we're fast approaching 2014, or as it's also known, the International Year of Crystallography. It'll be a hundred years since the first X-ray diffraction patterns started to give clues to the structure of biological molecules. The recipe for X-ray crystallography is seemingly simple. Get your molecule of interest, say a protein get it to crystallise, and then bounce X-rays off it and look at the way they diffract to tell you about the shape. X-ray crystallography has been responsible for working out the vast majority of the protein structures we know today. But crystallising proteins is actually really hard, especially larger molecules, which either don't form crystals or form such tiny ones that they're completely obliterated in the X-ray beam. Ilma Schlichting from the Max Planck Institute for Medical Research in Germany has found a way to use these tiny crystals before they're smashed to bits. She uses a piece of kit called an X-ray free electron laser. The laser allows useful diffraction measurements to be recorded from loads of tiny crystals in the split second before they're destroyed. Jeff Marsh called Ilma to hear more. These machines deliver X-ray pulses that are extremely bright They deliver basically the same amount of photons in one flash, which is on a femtosecond timescale duration, which is usually delivered in a second at a synchrotron. You're basically then capturing this diffraction pattern before the crystal basically destroys. That's why it's also called diffraction before destruction. Now, these uh, X-ray free electron lasers aren't small bits of kit, are they? No, these are gigantic machines. Um, They're linear accelerators in contrast to the synchrotrons, which are circular machines. Currently, there are two worldwide that produce X-rays in the hard X-ray regime that can be used for atomic structure determination. Right, so there are only two of these in the world. Um, Have they successfully deciphered any structures up to date? First of all, they have shown that you can get high-resolution structural information that basically gives the same information as data collected a synchrotron. They have given new information about a protease that showed basically the mechanism of native inhibition of this enzyme. And they have been used for time-resolved studies on biomolecules. Okay, now because the short bursts of X-ray light destroy the small crystals in your sample, you need to take literally millions of, of different images. How is that achieved? That is achieved by what is called a serial data collection approach, where you basically inject zillions of these small crystals, one after the other in the X-ray beam. And this is basically done by using so-called injectors that spit out very small columns of liquid in which these crystals are swimming. 
but then presumably you have a large, messy data set. Is it a pain to process the data? Obviously, you can't do this by hand anymore, like you do at a synchrotron, where we go through, say, all of these images by hand in some cases. So one needs basically programs that, first of all, find the patterns that correspond to a crystal hit. Once you have the hits, then you need to basically index them, and then you can apply all of these regular um, crystallographic softwares that, of course, need to be modified in scripts so that you can apply them on these huge data flows. In your opinion, then, is this technique going to become the norm for all crystallography, or are we only going to deploy it in cases of these troublesome large molecules? That's a difficult question to answer. I mean, right now uh, we only have two of these sources worldwide, so access to beam time is limited. The next thing is we're at the beginning, so we still need to do a lot of method development in terms of, for example, sample delivery using less sample, making it easier for the general user to use. So I think for the next couple of years, um, it will stay a niche, um, but it's very conceivable that uh, this will become a very important tool for these difficult systems. And other than structures, what, what other possibilities does this technique open up? Well, there are many applications in physics and chemistry. I mean, the most obvious one, of course, is These X-ray pulses are so intense that they basically transform every sample into plasma just because it explodes due to the intense radiation. And this, of course, means you can do plasma physics with these machines. You can do all kinds of physics, and, of course, you can do time-resolved methods on a chemical time scale. So it has a very broad um, range of application that makes them unique tools for a very large group of scientists. That was Ilma Schlichting talking to Jeff Marsh. You can find that paper at nature.com slash nature. Now it's time for the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. Painkillers can combat the unwanted side effects of pot. Marijuana has been used for thousands of years to treat medical conditions like chronic pain and cancer. But the drug isn't used long term because of its side effects on the brain. Researchers in the US treated mice with THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. THC impaired their memory and how well their neurons signaled to each other, probably by stimulating an enzyme called COX-2. So the team treated the mice with a drug similar to ibuprofen that inhibits COX-2. It reversed these impairments but maintained POTS benefits, like stopping neurons from degenerating. Drugs like this could widen the use of medical marijuana. Find that paper in Cell. The Larsen B ice shelf on the Antarctic Peninsula spectacularly collapsed in March 2012. Now, geologists think it was triggered by thousands of small lakes on the surface suddenly draining. These small ponds of liquid water had formed over the course of a decade on top of glaciers surrounding Larsen B. But they all coincidentally disappeared just a few days before the shelf disintegrated. A US-based team recreated the collapse in a computer simulation. They think a single lake drained and caused fractures in the surrounding ice, which sucked neighbouring lakes dry. What followed was a catastrophic chain reaction that led to the shelf's sudden demise. Read more in Geophysical Research Letters. The Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, is the largest and most high-powered particle accelerator ever built. It sits under the border of Switzerland and France, and it's part of the European Nuclear Research Facility known as CERN. 
And now, in a new exhibition which opened this month, the Collider is coming to London. Physics writer Zia Morali reports. Please exit to the left to begin your tour of seven. How do you squeeze the world's largest experiment into an exhibition space of just 800 square metres? That was the challenge faced by Harry Cliff, a particle physicist at the Large Hadron Collider, the particle accelerator located under the border between Switzerland and France. Cliff was called in to co-develop the Collider exhibition at the Science Museum in London, which aims to recreate the experience of visiting the vast laboratory. So, Harry, why should we have an exhibition about the LHC? The LHC is an experiment like no other. In terms of the ambition, in terms of the engineering, the science questions that are being asked that are kind of cosmic in terms of their depth, and also... The most exciting thing, I think, in some ways about the LHC is the international nature of this project, that you've got thousands of people from all over the world, from different nationalities and backgrounds, working together for a single purpose. Um, I think the LHC is one of those projects that's captured the public's imagination in a way very few other science endeavours do. It's it's been compared to, in that way, the Apollo space programme, and I think that's actually quite an apt comparison. It is this journey of discovery into the unknown. You and I have both been to the LHC, which is a wonderful experience. It's absolutely huge. The proton beams are accelerated through tunnels that are 27 kilometres in diameter. So how on earth do you begin to recreate the experience of walking through those tunnels in an exhibition? Most of the time you're not in these enormous spaces. Actually, if you visit CERN, most of the time you're in some relatively small industrial facility or you're in someone's office or you're in the canteen. And that's actually what we've gone for more. So as you walk through the exhibition, you'll be walking through a series of reconstructed spaces at CERN, so including a short section of the LHC tunnel with a much tighter curvature than the real thing, because unfortunately we can't get a 27-kilometre tunnel in our 800-square-metre exhibition. The LHC is 175 metres underground, so please use the lift. We've just descended into the underground tunnels of the LHC, stepping into an elevator that takes us down deep underground and we're about to emerge into the actual tunnels. As we follow a path round the accelerator, pretty much like the actual proton beams at the collider, we can see a number of objects in glass cases that show us bits of the detector, bits of equipment, such as um, an actual hydrogen canister that was used in the experiment. One of the sort of more charming bits about the exhibition is that they've managed to recreate the kind of gritty, dirty and quite old feel of the Collider. You know, you might expect it to be very high-tech and very flash, but, you know, the walls are grey, there's sort of graffiti on them and dirt. Uh, You know, there's a bicycle there showing kind of how low-tech it is because that's what people use to travel around these huge tunnels. And they've recreated that very, very well. Abstract science presented abstractly quite often doesn't make any sense, especially in a museum environment where you don't have total control over what information people consume in what order. That's part of the reason we went for a linear experience, where there is a kind of narrative journey that you're on as you walk through the exhibition. But it's through the people that we wanted to deliver these abstract concepts. The science is all there. If you want to know about superconductors or high vacuums or Higgs bosons or antimatter or whatever it is you're interested in, it's all in the exhibition. But it is delivered in this language through real scientists and engineers or in a style as if it's a scientist 
scientist or engineer who's scribbled something up on a whiteboard or, or done some handwritten note to explain something to you. I lost it, Bernard from the Atlas Control Center. Oh, Bernard, so good to hear from you. How can I help you? We're just looking at the current collision rate and it seems we're seeing a lower collision You'll find yourself towards the end of the tour walking through a recreation of a typical corridor at the LHC or out at CERN where the sort of the theoretical physicists and the experimental physicists have their offices and it's a pretty faithful creation including sort of daft jokes about Schrodinger's missing cat on the wall. It just feels very real if you've ever wandered the corridors of CERN that's pretty much what it's like. We had extremely complimentary things said by everyone who'd come to visit from CERN. We obviously worked very closely with CERN and people gave very generously of their time and it was hugely gratifying to see them really excited. I think and kind of delighted to see not just the obvious spectacular underground spaces reconstructed but also some of the fairly tatty 1970s office spaces which they were very familiar with and they were all noticing details which, uh, you know, which are actually part of their day-to-day -day lives at CERN. And for those around the world who can't make it to London to see the exhibition, um, are there any plans to bring the exhibition to them? Absolutely. So this uh, exhibition has been designed to be uh, deconstructed and put in the back of a put into shipping crates and toured around the world. So we're currently in discussion with a number of venues, I think on three continents, who may or well, hopefully will soon sign up to take the exhibition. But they wanted to see the final finished piece, so nothing is set in stone yet. But we should have some announcements pretty soon. So watch this space. That was Zia Morali talking to Harry Cliff. That's it for this week. Join us next time when we'll be peering at the origins of the moon. In the meantime, don't forget to listen to the latest Nature Pastcast, our monthly science history series. This time, we rewind to Victorian London, where the very first issue of Nature was born. To listen, go to nature.com slash nature slash podcast. I'm Kerry Smith. Thanks for listening. <laughs>